0: Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you earn the mug that says world's greatest dad. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am your blood and brain work panel and a full support team wrapped into a middle-aged dad. You know, One of the things that I've really worked to communicate over the years is how easy it is to move your health markers forward. So if your blood work just came back with a raised eyebrow of concern from your physician, this episode is for you. Actually, this is even more so an episode for the guys who have been avoiding getting their blood work done in the first place because they don't want bad news. Just go get it. I've got some great news, as a matter of fact, and that is that any signal, no matter how unpleasant it is, can be your friend if you know how to respond to it. And that's why I brought on today's guest, Dr. Mark Bubbs is a naturopathic doctor and performance nutritionist. I first was introduced to him when he was working with Basketball Canada. He has worked with athletes at all levels, trying to improve their performance on the court or field, and he's also worked with regular folks doing the same at home and at work. And over the past 20 years, he has found a lot of parallels between the two. And by the way, he is the father of three girls under the age of nine, so he knows what it's like to be in the thick of it, so... Regardless of your fitness level, I think you're going to find some things in this discussion that you can take and run with. Before we get into the episode, I've set up a feedback form, dadstrength.com slash feedback. You can share your thoughts there. You can ask me questions. You can set up a call to learn about coaching and workshops. Hell, you can even just tell me that you listened to the episode. I like hearing from you. I really do. All right, let's get right into my interview with Dr. Mark Bubbs. The very first thing I wanted to know was, okay, you've got all this clinical expertise, great, but how do you actually make it work in a way that your family will respond to and listen to and not create any friction at home?
1: That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? That's a great question. And, you know, over the years
0: of seeing
1: clients, as a nutritionist, you as a personal trainer, strength coach, you start to realize the things that maybe you thought were so important to do, maybe aren't as important and you start to get a little bit more purposeful with some of the things that you want to develop, right? You, you, you think of a longer runway with trying to get to some of those endpoints. where I think when clients come to us, they want to get there right away, right? They want to put everything into it. And so I think family does that a little bit as well with having kids because you don't, it's different communication than a client is paying for your service as you well. No. So, it's definitely forced me to think in different ways of how do we create some environments that make the right decision just a lot easier. So rather than having to say and tell my kids, hey, let's do this, let's do that, how can we start to shape things a little bit to be able to make it so that that just becomes kind of the easier thing to do? And the other thing that maybe
0: we're trying to dissuade becomes harder. This is something that I know you'll be able to relate to as a parent. Because we have to pick our battles. Not every eating choice can be a debate or a negotiation. So when these things happen automatically, it takes all of that cognitive load away. And it's the same thing, by the way, for us when we're grazing late at night in the pantry. But we'll get to that later. I can think of a great example, and that is BJ Fogg. Who is one of my mentors? He runs the behavior design lab at Stanford. He's the author of Tiny Habits. And he has something called Super Fridge. He and his partner will shop every week and they will buy healthy foods, whatever is in alignment with the way they want to eat. They'll prep them, they'll make them convenient and easy. They'll chop up carrots and peppers and whatever floats their boat. And what happens when you open the fridge? Everything is a good choice, right? So rather than put it all on, this idea of willpower or, or how we're prescribing eating, we can simply make the right choices more convenient. We can make them automatic and kids are pretty adaptable. And the irony, obviously,
1: when you work with clients is this is, well, from a nutrition standpoint, it's kind of the same thing, really. Like we're trying to change people's rhythms and patterns, right? We don't realize how pattern oriented we are. And, you know, when it's, not helping us, it can really turn things in the wrong direction. But I think clients are always pleasantly surprised that actually, if we just start getting some of these loops running in the right direction, all of a sudden we can make a lot of progress without trying so hard. You know, effort is obviously important in this whole story, but we need to, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And we have clients always want to come out guns blazing when they're signing up to a new program or trying to lose weight or whatever it might be, but try, you know, how, do we, how do we then draw that out so we can keep up that momentum for them and keep up their energy over the, you know, over the long haul?
0: I want to pause here for a second just because I think this is so important. The assumption a lot of us make is that our efforts will be directly related to our success. And sometimes that's true, But not always. And the truth is that shaping your environment really makes all of this easier. And what we tend to think of is when it comes to willpower, is that, okay, I've got to hold this in my mind. I've got to make these decisions all the time. But if you look at skilled performance in any domain, and so what I want to get you to do is think about in your own life what are the things you're really great at or the things that you've developed a high level of skill with? You'll notice a lot of these things happen automatically it's not all decision making right just like when you climb into a car to drive somewhere a lot of us are capable of going into our default mode network to just go on autopilot and bada bing bada boom we arrive at the place we needed to arrive everything's good so anything that you're highly skilled with will look like this will have a high level of automaticity guess what that is easy and that's what we're looking for. Not always a big cognitive load. Not always a lot of decision making or willpower exercised. What becomes easy and automatic? The choices
1: that you make are going to impact your energy and your focus for that morning period. And so, if we make kind of the, let's call them the wrong choices, or you know, the typical breakfast these days is more ultra-processed foods, just stuff that comes stuff that comes in boxes and bags and packages, um, you know orange juices, things like that. So you get this rush of blood sugars first thing in the morning, maybe some caffeine as well. And so people do feel energized, even if they're tired from poor sleep and kids at home and busy lifestyle. The challenge then is that, that you know, as those the blood sugars begin to drop mid morning, now all of a sudden we're looking for more energy from the caffeine, from a snack. And so we're, we, we're relying now on this kind of external source of energy, right? Um, and so that's not so good because your body is fully capable of breaking down body fat to control your blood sugar levels, right? But as our blood sugar levels dip in that mid-morning, that initial response, which always feels, you know, in that first minute or so kind of intense, oh, I'm tired, I'm fatigued. And so, you know, if we can start to then go back to the question around environment, you know, what are the food options for breakfast? Well, we got to start getting some of the things out of the house that maybe we rely a little too heavily on, right? Like it's really easy to default to toast all the time because it just whack it in, push it down. You know tying in the kids it's a similar idea of how do we get them used to certain patterns because the interesting thing is once you get used to that certain taste or rhythm people can run with just a couple of different food options for breakfast for quite a long time um and just and then it becomes just second nature right it's just what you do you don't have to think about the recipe you're going to use or all these various things and hey I'm a, I'm a foodie as well i love i love to eat well so we don't definitely want people to still enjoy their you know meals and weekends and things but one of the key things we just got to start getting into a nice rhythm and the start of the day is definitely a spot to to focus
0: on for most of us so i want to boost the signal on that statement because it's so important i have run a lot of people through nutrition programming i've worked with a lot of folks in the tiny habits community and i can tell you that by far the beginning of the day is the most reliable and successful place to create changes, not just because we're fresher mentally, but simply because we are the least subject to chaos. Every moment that passes is another opportunity for a work or a life emergency. So if we're really trying to build habits, starting early in the day can be one of our most powerful tools.
1: Life gets busy in midlife, particularly if you have little people at home right so now all of a sudden we're not sleeping as well and we know that if you don't sleep enough even in a single bout the next morning even if you have that same healthy breakfast you're gonna get a more pronounced blood sugar response so already we're back to that story we're up the roller coaster we're going to come down and so we're going to be
0: struggling with energy so if the earliest part of the day is the easiest to control what does that mean for the latest part of the day the end of the day becomes a
1: problem we're getting Late eating is the, is the scientific term for eating after 6 p.m., and we're more and more in countries all around the world, not just North America, France even, places that are supposed to be healthy, Japan. We're eating later and later at night. And eating late in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but what are we more likely to move towards the later we eat? Processed stuff, stuff in boxes, desserts, more alcohol, if you've had a busy, stressful day, you get a little bit of that relief, right? You get a little bit of that dopamine, and serotonin hit, feels that kind of ah moment where you can relax. And again, as a one-off, it's not a problem, but I think most people experience maybe in the pandemic that all of a sudden Netflix and red wine on a Friday night was fine, but now it's Netflix and red wine Monday to Sunday, we get a problem because the sugars and the alcohol are gonna start to interfere with the quality of your sleep. So we're not getting into that deep, restful sleep. And so we wake up the next morning we're more fatigued so now it's more caffeine more snacks and so the patterns that tend to be weight gain particularly around the midsection and so the patterns that tend to be weight gain particularly around the midsection right we see energy levels are lower sleep issues sleep apneas and mood gets impacted and mood's always a tricky one because men aren't very good at well Oftentimes, going to the doctor, even but there, we don't communicate as well with with doctors, and so one of the stereotypes we have of low mood is kind of feeling apathetic and and that's that sad and those types of things. But for men, it's not that; those aren't really the keystone symptoms, right? The cardinal symptoms is more that kind of anger, venting, like this these types of things that we don't necessarily associate with, you
0: know, let's say low mood, depression. We often think of resilience or toughness as being able to just soldier through pain or discomfort. But I have come to see resilience as actually, and almost paradoxically requiring a lot of sensitivity. We have to be tuned into our bodies. And in this case, Mark is talking about how to be tuned into our emotions so that we can figure out what's happening. And that's not just psychologically, that's physically as well. Emotions bring with them hormones like cortisol and adrenaline and noradrenaline, they can be signals about what is going on with our health if we listen to them. And, you know, it's funny, something I read a while back really landed for me. It talked about how we've sort of bought in culturally to the idea that it's women that are emotional and not men, but the conceit you need to accept for that premise is that anger is not an emotion and we know that's not the case at all. This is a really common issue for men I know who have a tremendous amount of stress and a lot of worry about <laughs> providing and being great dads and partners. So in order to get ahead of this and not wait until it's a health emergency, we actually have to become great at listening to and interpreting these signals in our bodies. The term for this, by the way, one of my favorite words is interoception.
1: Ultimately, if we kind of tie this back to the whole athletes here, when an athlete's overtraining, one of the key signs is, is is lower mood, right? Well, we don't have to be training from lifting, right? We have a life load of all the work, and then the home, and the kids, and everything else. And when that life load gets high enough, you're effectively overtrained, or overstressed, or under recovered, or however you want to view it. So we get this spiral of. if you're doing blood work you're going to see higher fasting glucose and ha1c which is this three-month average of blood sugars your triglycerides might start rising up which isn't so good for your heart your blood pressure blood pressure is actually a really good one and this is one where if you see the blood pressure getting up above 130 even over the mid 80s that's a little canary in the coal mine saying hey this nervous system's being taxed a little bit and you'll see guys you know easily up into the 140s and this is where medicine is great for helping to alleviate that symptom which helps to keep your the vet va- you know, vascular system healthy particularly in the kidneys and places where they're very small but you know as you know jeff we're just waving away the smoke right like the fire is still there the person the reason why the blood pressure is high is still there with the poor diet lack of fitness not sleeping and so that's where we need to just double down and say okay you know what can we do to help to change this so i think You know, it gets tough because people feel like it's going to be more homework. It's like, I'm already busy enough. How much more homework is this
0: doctor or trainer or nutritionist going to give me? So speaking from personal experience, working with a lot of clients, what I have come to use as sort of an SOP for this stuff is before we can add anything into your life, if you feel like, okay, I really want to make some positive changes in terms of nutrition or exercise or whatever. The first question to ask is not necessarily what can I add, but what can I take away? What is inessential? What is something that is not particularly enjoyable or useful that is just hogging bandwidth? Are there any easy opportunities to get rid of that? Because if we do, we freed up space for something that is going to be a lot more uh, productive and adaptive. And when you put that in, you should notice an immediate difference. If we find a way to get another 30 minutes of sleep a night, for example, that can be profound and create a lot of energy and momentum for our next steps. You
1: know, if we start with BMI as a, as a
0: marker, I think that's, again, a great marker to start with because we're thinking almost
1: like in martial arts of, you know, the white belt, the yellow belt, like how do we work our way up through these things? And if you have a client who's over a 30 BMI, then you don't need to do a caliper test right? We just, we need to get them under that, that 30. And so, uh, you know, when you get above 30 effectively, blood sugars are going to be higher, visceral adiposity. So the the white adipose tissue around organs is going to be higher, which is much more pro-inflammatory and much more strongly associated with all the chronic diseases of, of
0: lifestyle. So I'm going to repeat this back just because I don't want you to miss this piece. Mark is talking about uh, visceral fat, or fat accumulating around your organs, which is considered to be a higher risk factor than fat in other places in your body. The calipers you mentioned is just one way to measure body fat, but it's uh, probably overpowered and overly precise. If we can, you know, look at someone and say, "All right, they they're carrying definitely more fat than is is maybe ideal from a health perspective." BMI just in case you don't know, body mass index is pretty straightforward. It's your height divided by your weight. And there are criticisms of it, including that it doesn't really factor in muscle mass. So if someone's carrying more muscle, their weight will skew higher, they'll get a higher BMI. But the truth is, uh, I generally just ask people a yes or no question, are you a bodybuilder? If the answer is yes, you might be carrying around an obscene amount of muscle and that would skew the numbers. But if you were simply a fit person or a a reasonably muscled person, it tracks pretty well, especially if you include a circumferential measurement around the umbilicus, around your belly button. If you've got a high BMI and you have a big gut, you may be totally fine, but statistically speaking, you have higher risk factors for lifestyle diseases. That's a nice little marker to use to start with. And, And if you're gonna
1: again, like talked about earlier, all these chronic health conditions, it's nice that we have medications that can help. But at the end of the day, you end up in the same place all the time, which is what are you going to eat? How are you going to move and these lifestyle factors like sleep and stress. And so, you know, if you're a trainer or practitioner working with someone it's nice to have a long runway and say, Hey, we're just gonna let's work with the morning, let's get you to go for a 15 or 20 minute walk, grab a coffee, come back home, and we'll change your breakfast. And that's it. And what a lot of trainers and even the clients would be amazed at is all of a sudden, wow! I lost a couple of pounds this week, um, and then we can start building on that because it's amazing how we're all creatures of habit. Once we get into that loop of morning walk, which is what I eat for breakfast, you know, then then it's much easier. You you
0: sort of covered a third of your entire day if you can get your morning right. Mark's talking about mornings again, and we should listen to him because he has a ton of experience on this. And the simple sort of behavioral lens to look through is what helps people make great changes. And knowing that you've already locked down a third of your day and you've got that rolling really helps. And that may not be enough yet to move things dramatically, but it is absolutely essential. And then if you can own one more part of your day, and that could be an amazing lunch or more likely... It could be just getting rid of the biggest mistakes that we tend to make at night when we're tired and we're looking for stimulation or a bit of relief, as he says. When we put these together, and now you're two thirds of the way there, it becomes a lot easier to bridge the gap and make massive progress. And since we're on the subject, particularly of behavior change, I wanted to know what Mark saw when it came to barriers. What aspects of behavior change are easy on paper, easy theoretically, but where he sees men struggling?
1: Yeah. And I think it's almost like sometimes the skills they bring to their actual job of like putting that effort in or again, sort of being very in control of the situation makes it difficult for them as well to, to kind of let go of some of that control and just embrace the process. And yeah, trust the fact that that little thing is going to add up. Because it is kind of scary, especially if you're someone an individual who's trying to lose if they're over 30 BMI, it's probably not the first time they tried to lose weight when they come into your office or my office. And so they have all these, you know, for lack of a better term, losses, right? Like they might not have had a win for quite a long time. So it's nice to be able to provide them with, hey, that first hurdle is was, wasn't too bad. We got over it. All right, let's 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 build on that. is doable. And we do that, like, and again, it's not to be uh, with Olympic athletes. I mean, we try to make the first thing easy as well. Like, it's it's not that's that parallel again to athletes that we're, you know, they just are more genetically gifted for whatever endeavor they're doing. But it's it's sometimes people feel like we're dumbing it down for them. We're like, no, no, no. This is a process we use for elite
0: performers as well. There's this sort of cultural myth that athletes have totally different requirements. And in fact, some people think that if they mimic the workouts or the protocols of athletes, they will produce the same results. But the simple truth is the basics are the basics. And if an athlete doesn't have them in place, they don't get a pass go or collect $200 either. It's the same. And if that gets your blood pressure up, well, my friend, you've just been part of the segue.
1: Yeah, and high blood pressure is a good one. There's a reason why heart attacks the silent the silent killer, because most men don't know what their blood pressure is, and if you're walking around with 180 over 110, and you don't realize it, hopefully most people aren't. But this is why I go into your doc once a year, even for guys, just pop into a pharmacy, to check your blood pressure. You know, as close to first thing in the morning as you can. Try not to have any coffee before. But blood pressure is going to tell you if your blood sugars are consistently higher, your blood pressure is more than likely going to be high. If you lack sleep, you know, if you're struggling with weight gain, um, all these things are going to be correlated to higher blood pressure. And so the bigger picture is it's like the lights in the dashboard of your car when blood pressure is high, right? You got to check the engine, you got to change the oil. You can't just duct tape over it and say, Don't worry, it doesn't really matter. Because something's happening. in there we got to, And again, medications can help to lower it, which takes the pressure off the kidneys. But sometimes in medicine, that's where we struggle because we say, Oh, look, the blood pressures back down, we get medication, but we didn't address the reasons why. And so I think you know, that's where where guys can go a little bit further and, and start to dig into that.
0: I remember my dad's attitude toward medication being, well, first of all, let's take all of the drugs. And second of all, because I'm taking all of the drugs, why would I do anything else? I'm already putting plenty of effort in here. But, you know, when we begin to take medication for a lifestyle issue, it opens up a window. And in that window, we can either begin to course correct our behaviors and habits, or we can just kind of push the boundaries and further entrench them. And so that choice is up to you. You know what my advice will be. And so when we are speaking about what those markers, one of the simplest and most accessible markers is fasting blood glucose.
1: Interesting thing with fasting glucose, it is an acute marker. So if you have a bad night's sleep, and you wake up the next morning, and that's the day you got to run labs, it might be higher than it normally is. If you did an intense training session the day before, again, it might be a little bit higher. Um, I think the interesting thing for most of us who are trying to you know, perform and survive in midlife is that even when you're in the normal range of fasting glucose, if you still get under five, you're gonna see benefits when we look at research on longevity and healthy aging. And if you start to get below towards 4.4, 4.3, you're even better. Right, so there's some targets there that we can we can continue to work towards. We don't have to get there overnight, um, but as you know, sometimes it's nice to have some objective metrics for people, right? Because it gives us a bit of a north star to aim for, so that we can keep putting the down payments and the movements and the lifestyle and the nutrition, because we're, we're we're getting closer, but we're not we're not there yet. Right? The fasting glucose is another good one. Just make sure. Um, you know, if you can get, if it is higher, then check it in 12 weeks again, you know, get get more frequent markers just to see where you're at.
0: Getting a red flag on your blood work is kind of scary, but you know what? This is also a great place to remind you of how resilient and adaptive the human body is. And if you're seeing impaired blood glucose levels, the amazing news is it's really easy to move it forward almost any positive changes you make when it comes to activity or intake will have an impact. And just like Mark said, sleep as well. So you have an opportunity in a pretty short period of time to see forward progress. And we know this isn't carved in stone. It is ephemeral. It is part of a moment. But if it is the indicator of a suite of health habits that you've developed, you are definitely trending In the right way and it's nice to feel that sense of success and progress in such a short time frame
1: yeah i mean this is one where you know and obviously if you're going with your gp they'll flag it for sure but this is one that's nice let's call it from a practitioner standpoint because you can make a big impact especially if you're you know trainer strength coach you don't have to be on the medical side but the fact that you're going to level up nutrition get them moving Right? I mean, they're one of the best ways to lower blood sugars and blood pressure is just to go for a walk after you eat. I mean, how easy is that, right? And for our clients who are entertaining, you get a lot of this, you know, hey, I got client meetings and client dinners. All right, well, let's just go for a walk after that dinner. You know, yeah, hey, you have a dog at home? Perfect. When you get home from that client dinner, take your dog, go for a 15, 20 minute walk, come back home. And something that simple can help buffer or offset the effects of that because, as you know, we get, some clients were, you know, one, two, three times a week having to do that. And that's when it starts to add up when you got to be out that much. And.
0: If you want a real generational divide, I think of it as the generation that walked with their hands behind their backs and everyone going forward. I remember my grandparents doing that. And I certainly remember a postprandial walk an after dinner walk to quote unquote, help with digestion. But You know, I did a deep dive on this once looking through the research and the impact was huge. And it wasn't so much that moving around and exercising after a meal was transformative. It was just stark in contrast to not doing anything at all. It's funny, isn't it? Because now it's nice that it's getting more common.
1: And like you said, in the old country, it's what everybody did after dinner, right? But uh, it's almost an easier way to have a conversation with someone sometimes than just sitting straight across from them because there's sort of... You know, more happening, more going on. So, yeah, it's tremendous stress.
0: So, taking an after dinner walk is not only effective in terms of utilizing those sugars, those carbohydrates circulating around in your system, it also builds a beautiful habit. We're always going to look for this formula of a prompt. Okay. After we finish eating, I will put on my shoes. That's all it takes. Once you put on your shoes, the rest will organize pretty beautifully. And it doesn't have to be a long walk. Uh, I remember the research I was looking at said 15 minutes is enough to make a dramatic difference. But more than anything else, it's nice to say, hey, you know what? Our grandparents had this part right. So we've covered blood sugars. Let's talk about fats in the blood. And this is typically measured as LDL and HDL. Uh, So that's low and high density lipoproteins. I asked Mark about optimal HDL levels, but he was a lot more interested in LDL levels. High HDL is generally
1: good, but it can be too high. But LDL is
0: the one we tend to think about. LDL is the
1: one that when it does get higher, it is strongly associated with worsening arterial health and increased risk for heart attacks. And we're in this kind of little bit of a strange loop in the sense that lower carb diets can really help to lose weight and to improve. Blood sugar control, to lower inflammation, to lower triglycerides—all these good things. But it can peak up LDL a little bit, and for some people, it can do it quite a lot if we get a little too aggressive with the butters and the coconut oils and things like that. And so, this is one that can be confusing for a lot of clients because it's like, wait a minute—I just lost forty pounds, you know, thirty pounds, or whatever it might be. Hey, that's great—you have reduced your risk. But if that LDL starts climbing too high, um you know, then that's definitely one where we want to take a look at what's going on, particularly with the saturated fat intake.
0: Speaking of saturated fats, I couldn't help it. I had to ask Mark about butter in the coffee. This is a popular thing. People in keto circles love it. But what is the actual impact on your blood lipid profile?
1: Yeah, like this is sort of the like romantic nomadic when you're in the, the the wilderness in Russia drinking milk or tea with 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 butter in it, you're going to go out in the field and work your butt off for 10 or 12 hours in a row, right? Like, and they don't have access to ultra processed foods or energy dense foods. So the context drives everything for them, they need this energy density, because they're going to be working, right. So for the rest of us, it's not such a good idea. Because when you start to ingest too much too quick, LDL will start to go up and that's, that's not a good sign and really. I mean, if you're going to enjoy a bit of butter, I mean, for me anyway, like let's put it on a potato or something that where I can actually kind of take like, um, it's sort of, you know, for me anyway, it doesn't do anything beneficial to my coffee. So let's, you know, enjoy your coffee, keep your coffee where it's at. Let's, let's put the butter on the food if you want to have it in moderation, but that's definitely one where people have been kind of really gunning the, the butter or the coconut oil and, uh, when it comes to saturated fats, so you can get too much of a good thing. The really interesting thing is when it comes from food, you, you don't, we don't nearly see the same kind of effect when we look at the whole dietary pattern. So if you're not actually really ratcheting it up kind of forcefully by adding all this extra butter or coconut oil, and let's say you're just eating more animal protein, in the context of what we call a healthy dietary pattern, right? we don't see problems because the Spanish and the French consume above 10%, which is the general sort of recommendation for saturated fats. And they're the longest living people on the planet, right? So there's there's wiggle room there, which is the nice part. But yeah, let's let's not uh, let's not shoot back the, the blocks of butter. Not the best idea.
0: You know, it's true that when you remove the sort of magic of a secret formula and you just think of it as another form of dietary intake, it becomes a lot more straightforward. But I'll tell you something that has more complexity to it. It is alcohol, particularly as stress reliever. Yeah, I mean, alcohol's the
1: nervine, which means it relaxes the nervous system. So you're not imagining things when life's stressful, and you come home and you have a Scotch or glass of red wine. Oh, right. It's like, and, you know, on its own, in moderation, we see that people who don't drink don't live any longer than people that drink once two units. And, you know, if you're not a drinker, that's not a reason to start. But it's it's one of those, you know, the body of, of evidence at this point, The tricky part is always just the dose, right? We end up consuming, you know, the glass of wine at home becomes a giant goblet and you can fit half a bottle in one glass, right? Well, we start to drink half a bottle to two thirds of a bottle to a full bottle before bed. And now again, that's a powerful interrupter for REM sleep. You don't sleep as deeply, wake up the next day, we're tired and fatigued. And so for me, the interesting thing with alcohol is when we look at kind of the European countries, they tend to be drinking alcohol with food. And the part that researchers can't tease out from all these studies is that you're typically drinking with other people and sharing stories and laughing and connecting. So even the the studies that show benefit for alcohol, it might really not be the alcohol at all. It's just the fact that these people are engaging in these opportunities to get together with friends and family and and have a laugh and the rest of it. So, you know, you, you definitely, definitely just need to watch because if life's busy it's an easy thing to start put you know building up too much in one's lifestyle and that's a really fast track to bad sleep depression low libido right so that's one of the kind of first ones that we can just start to pull that out and then now things start to get better pretty quick
0: so if we want to put some real complexity into the system there's a straightforward way to do it and that is to make the same things we use to relieve our stress cause our stress and that could be food or that could be alcohol either way we get this sort of ouroboros effect where we are the snake devouring its own tail and so the question is how do we step away from this and my first piece of advice you know speaking as a coach would be we have to understand what the benefit is if we're using alcohol to relieve stress, we want to know when and how and where, and then ask the question of what else could we be doing to replace that. And as Mark got to, a lot of the time, simply improving your sleep will increase your capacity substantially. One thing I want to call out here is how well-versed Mark is in applying ideas around behavior change to health markers because it's very easy to be sciency about it and say simply do this or simply do that. But as you've heard in our discussion, he really thinks about these things in the terms of how humans living their lives, their busy and often stressful lives can make this work. So this is something he does for a living. This is something you can reach out to him for. Here's what you need to know about that.
1: You know, and I do a lot of work in coaching, so people want to Connect. We got a program for for guys like myself and, and yourself, or kids at home, busy work life, and you know the whole idea is working off some of these heuristics and, and building in some of these processes so that it's it's not so much work. And so that's Peak Forty Nutrition Coaching. Uh, people want to check it out. There's a little book by the same name. Um, so yeah, that's what we're we're doing to help help people, you know, look better, feel better, and then perform better, not just in the gym, but you know, at work and at home too.
0: There we have it. Big thanks to Dr. Mark Bubbs for joining me on this episode. I hope you found his insights and perspective helpful and actionable. That is the point. And and that's a beautiful thing. A lot of this is very doable. If you have feedback on the episode, you can go to dadstrength.com slash feedback. I would love to hear your thoughts. If you're curious about coaching, if you are curious about our upcoming workshop for dads with ADHD, you can get at me there. More than anything else, I want to tell you that the way forward is often simpler and more accessible than you realize. And when you begin to make those changes, especially as we talked about with sleep, everything gets easier. How nice is that? So thanks again for hanging out with us today. The Dazzling Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. titled music by Daniel Ross.